Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 53, March 21st to March 27th, 1862. Before we get started, just want to mention that we do have some Patreon content posted once again. This is going to be the slideshow, photo slideshow for the Battle of Pea Ridge, and that is posted. goes pretty nicely, I think, with our Pea Ridge episode, so you get to see some of the places that we talk about. So if you want to check out those pictures of the modern-day battlefield, that sounds like something that would interest you. Uh, make sure to check out the Patreon feed once again. That link should be in the description. Last week, we talked about the Battle of New Bern and continued Burnside's coastal campaign in North Carolina. We will actually continue that campaign this week. We also fought the Battle of Hampton Roads, albeit a week late, but we got finally the showdown between the CSS Virginia and the USS Monitor. This action almost had profound effects on the plans of George B. McClellan, who was wishing to alter his route of attack, but started to move his army to Fortress Monroe, as we have discussed. Finally, the Army of the Potomac was on the move. At last, Confederate forces would prepare for the potential assault. We will not head to the peninsula just yet, but rather we are going to pop out to the Shenandoah Valley and see what is going on out there in Virginia. You know what heading to the Shenandoah means in 1862. It means it is now time to start Jackson's famous Valley Campaign. Let's first set up the strategic situation. When last we checked in with Jackson, he had the Romney expedition, which accomplished very little for the hero of First Manassas. In fact, once the rebels had returned to Winchester, Jackson's army was sapped of its strength. By March of 1861, he had approximately 3,000 men. Remember that there were certain generals who were not necessarily happy with Jackson following that campaign. Romney was not necessarily a really desirable city to be in, especially over the winter. So when Jackson is able to reform, he does try to resign, as we mentioned in an earlier episode this year, back in January, but uh, that is denied course we need to have Jackson in the field if you're the confederacy there so he is still going to be in the valley he is just simply not going to have as many men as he did during the Romney campaign. Nathaniel Banks had moved down from the north in February and would soon occupy Winchester after repairing the key Baltimore and Ohio Railway. If you recall the Baltimore and Ohio Railway was a target for Jackson's invasion when he approached Maryland during that very same Romney campaign. 
James Shields will be stationed at Winchester with some 11,000 men. Joseph Johnson was, at this point, still in command of the Confederate forces in Virginia. Now, rather than waiting to see what McClellan was going to do, Johnson would withdraw his position at Centerville in early March. Confederate forces would take up a position south of the Rappahannock and wait for the Union to make the next move. To withdraw south meant that this left the Manassas Railroad hub to the enemy and effectively left Jackson out to dry. He would have to withdraw further to keep in line with the other Confederates. As you could imagine, if you had the Army of the Potomac moving an attempt to take Richmond, you might need to hang on to as many men as possible in that situation. No reinforcements would be arriving for Jackson, but he did have a pretty important job. He would need to occupy the Federals and keep resources funneled to the Valley rather than have them join in on putting pressure on the Southern Capitol. Banks was already reported to having started his move out of the Valley. Irvin McDowell would be stationed near Fredericksburg with an additional corps that could be bolstered. If he was reinforced with Banks and any other forces slated for the Valley, there would be two large armies, one moving up the peninsula and one traveling south that could catch Johnson in a pincer movement. Now Johnson was not aware that McClellan was flanking his line in central Virginia, but once that had become apparent, then the operations in the valley were that much more important. Right now, it was sort of on the back burner. The men left under Stonewall would eventually join the main army massing around Richmond. He just needed to delay as long as possible, which was still a tall order. Jackson would have to live up to his Superman status in order to pull this off. Stonewall would see an opportunity just south of Winchester at a place called Kernstown. Usually, he would have the advantage in terms of intelligence. Jedediah Hotchkiss, a well-known cartographer, was placed on his staff. Hotchkiss had been born in New York but relocated to the valley where he would start map making as a hobby. His maps would be vital for the Valley Campaign and the success of the Confederate forces. In addition to Hotchkiss, Jackson also had cavalry under Turner Ashby, whose relations with the citizenry of the Shenandoah Valley would also play a large role. I know I said I would introduce Ashby, so this seems like a good time for a proper rundown. The Fakir native is such a strange case of the lost cause narrative coming to life. After the war, he was depicted as a key figure of Southern chivalry, mostly because he did have a good relationship with the citizens of the valley as mentioned. His cavalry was ill-disciplined though, and he would cost Jackson dearly after Winchester. Ashby was also known to be a little vicious, with the Union forces, not forgiving them for the death of his brother, who, to be fair, had charged a unit of Union cavalry by himself 
rather than surrender. Turner would believe that the Union forces had left his brother on the field deliberately and possibly had even executed him uh, while wounded. So you can imagine he did not particularly care for the Union forces, uh, regardless of the validity of these reports. In late March of 1862, though Ashby had engaged the Union forces very briefly, and in so doing, had wounded General Shields, he also reported back to Jackson, thinking the Union forces were on the move. This, of course, would be the move from the Shenandoah Valley into central Virginia so that they could join the Corps under Irvin McDowell. On March 23, 1862, Jackson would not use proper diligence in terms of reconnaissance of the Union forces and take Ashby at his word. A citizen would report much the same as Ashby, and it would prove to be a false narrative. He was also under the impression that the Union Army had already moved out and was on the way to rendezvous with Union forces in the eastern part of the state. This could be an opportunity to retake Winchester. In the process, this could reroute troops back into the valley. Johnson had told Jackson to keep the Union forces where they were. Seizing the opportunity for the initiative on the Sabbath, something Jackson did not usually want to do, he would move his brigades under Colonel Fulkerson and Richard B. Garnett north to meet the enemy. Garnett was a Virginia native and cousin to the Robert Garnett who fell at Quirk's Ford. Richard was also the new commander of the Stonewall Brigade, Jackson's forces from 1st Manassas. There is a great account of that unit's thoughts on Jackson and Garnett, who had subsequently taken over for Jackson in the memoir review from December, four years in the Stonewall Brigade by John O. Castler. So shameless plug there. If you want to check that out, that is also on the Patreon feed. Fulkerson's men would attack federal forces under Nathan Kimball. Kimball, if you remember, had been commanding the Federals at Cheat Mountain. His men were in a strong position known as Pritchard Hill. The Union forces were aware of the Confederates, but they were not sure of the strength, thinking they could set up a nice trap for Ashby's cavalry, perhaps doing a reconnaissance on Winchester. Kimball had deployed men along the high ground on both sides of the Valley Pike. 16 pieces of artillery were deployed and were used to deadly effectiveness on the advancing men under Fulkerson. After taking on casualties, Jackson would swing his men in an attempt to flank the enemy line. Both sides would race to control a position called Sandy Ridge. Jackson had already taken the initiative by deploying artillery under Sandy Pendleton on that high ground, to combat the Union pieces. A stone wall would provide excellent cover along this high ground for his infantry. Kimball had also spotted the high ground and realized its importance, so it was more or less a foot race to get to that position. 
Jackson's men being the victors. Fulkerson and Garnett would deploy their forces along the wall. It was now time for the Southerners to provide devastating fire. Volleys were unleashed on the now attacking Union troops, inflicting heavy casualties. Men under Erastus Tyler would put continued pressure on the rebel line, though. Eventually, Garnett's men would run out of ammunition. Seeing no alternative, Garnett would withdraw his men. This move left the flank of Fulkerson exposed, and the Confederate withdrawal soon turned into a panicked retreat. Jackson could not rally his troops, despite insisting that they could use the bayonet such as they had at first Manassas. With the rebels retreating, Kimball did not pursue. If he had, it is very likely that there is no such thing as Jackson's Valley Campaign of 1862. No, Kimball would be satisfied that he would be the only Union commander to defeat both Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in separate engagements. So take that, Grant and Sherman. I give you Nathan Kimball. The casualty numbers were 590 killed, wounded, and missing for the Federals, as opposed to 718 killed, wounded, and missing for the Confederates. Despite being a tactical defeat for Jackson, it did have the desired effect that Johnson was looking for. Lincoln would grow increasingly concerned for the safety of the capital. Confederate troop estimates in the valley were blown out of proportion. In Washington, the rumor was that Jackson had as many as 10,000 men. I've actually seen it suggested that because of this aggressive move by Jackson, this is where the increase in troop estimate came from. So even though he has 3,000 men, it's sort of inconceivable for banks in the valley to realize that it's actually Jackson's aggressive nature, and it's not because he has a good amount of men that he can use in these offensive actions, uh, which is a hard lesson that the Union command in the valley is going to learn. Actually, shortly after the battle, Jackson would receive the reinforcements he sought in the division from Richard Ewell and men under Allegheny Johnson, making his numbers a more threatening 16,000. Nathaniel Banks was sent back into the valley, and reinforcements were rerouted away from the eastern part of the state. Blinker's division was denied joining the Army of the Potomac, and Irvin McDowell's corps would sit right where it was at Fredericksburg. If you recall, Lincoln had a high priority in making sure Washington was secure and having a rebel army slip out of the valley and take on Washington undefended could be a disaster to his government. The president had actually removed McClellan from his responsibility of being the overall army commander, wanting him to focus on the actions of the Army of the Potomac. This would actually play more into the hands of Jackson, and is cited as a large part of the reason he is successful. Banks, McDowell, as well as John C. Fremont, whose mountain department was summoned to close in on Jackson, would each report directly to Washington. Lack of cohesion and lack of proper coordination would hamstring the federal efforts in western Virginia. 
Richard Garnett, on the Confederate side, was actually removed from command following Kernstown. In sort of an unfair event, Jackson would blame Garnett for the defeat. Remember, Jackson is having a hard time trusting his subordinate officers after Romney, and even into 1862 and 1863, he has a hard time getting along with certain officers, so he thinks that Richard Garnett tried to torpedo him here at Kernstown, uh, which is not really the case, so that's why Richard Garnett gets uh, some unfair blame here. Lee would eventually drop the charges against him, Garnett going on to command troops once again during the Antietam campaign. He'll be part of Pickett's division, participating in the fateful Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, where he will meet his end. Now let's head over to North Carolina and check in on that campaign. An objective of Burnside after the capture of New Bern was the nearby Fort Macon. Fort Macon sat on the Bogue Bank, right by modern-day Atlantic Beach. It protected the approach to Beaufort and Moorhead City, as well as the Bogue Sound. Macon was a fort of the masonry variety, having been built after the War of 1812 to protect the coast. As we have mentioned before, the brick-and-mortar design was to defend attacks from naval vessels of that time who did not have rifled weaponry. In a similar vein, the cannon were not quite so accurate, so there was not as much of a worry should there be incoming fire. Named after a senator from North Carolina, the fort fell into ill repair very quickly. Right before the outbreak of the war, the fort was seized by militia troops. Prior to the operations by the Coastal Division, the fort did have a fairly large amount of artillery pieces, numbering some 50 in all. Ammunition, though, would be very scarce. Defending the fort was Colonel Moses White, and a garrison of artillerymen, numbering only around 400. This number, in reality, probably was reduced by sickness. Burnside, who had been promoted to Major General for his recent victories in the Outer Banks, would dispatch General Park south toward Macon from New Bern. When the Confederate infantry had withdrawn from the area that had included the regiment of infantry providing support to White, so there was little that the colonel could do to impede the advance of the enemy. Moorhead City and Beaufort would fall without a fight in late March. On the 23rd, Park would send Wern to White, requesting the surrender of the fort. This was very flatly refused. Now the problem is that Bogue Bank is effectively an island. If you were to take a look at a modern map, there are two bridges that can be used to access the lovely beaches there. These, of course, were not there in 1862. It would take some time for the Union forces to set up positions on the bank to threaten the fort. During this time, Macon was under siege. Sally attempts on the Union forces did little and did not inflict any casualties on the attackers. 
Eventually, the Union artillery was in place to begin a general bombardment of the fort. April 24th would see the Federals open up, pounding Fort Macon for 11 hours, using their rifled artillery. At a certain point, four ships from the Atlantic Blockading Squadron would join in with the land forces. Signal flags were used to direct the cannon to increase accuracy. Macon is another example of how the dated building material was no match for modern weapons. With considerable damage done to the walls and the inability to punch back with return fire, White was forced to surrender the fort. Afterward, the garrison was paroled. Confederate forces had lost 7 killed and 16 wounded. Union losses were 1 man killed and 3 wounded. Macon would be occupied for the remainder of the war and be used as a staging point for Federal forces and a prison. Not long after, the campaign would stall, Burnside being recalled to Virginia to help his friend McClellan in the Peninsula Campaign. We can pause right there because we have back-to-back larger-scale battles coming up. I guess it's good to have a little bit of an episode on the lighter side in that case. Today, we started up the Valley Campaign of 1862 with Jackson's defeat or tactical victory at Kernstown. We also checked back into the Coastal Division and what they were getting into in North Carolina. The capture of Fort Macon will effectively end the campaign as Burnside will move farther north to join the unfolding operations in Virginia. Next week, we're going to fight the Gettysburg of New Mexico in Glorieta Pass. Now, I say that because there are, I think, a couple battles that are referred to as the Gettysburg of someplace other than Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, right? But this one really is the high watermark of the Confederacy and does turn the tide for the invasion of New Mexico. So maybe we can refer this one as the Gettysburg of the Far West. How about that? I think I like that, so we'll stick with it. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.